Well, my name is Bill Stafiri. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, uh, I'm excited for what we're going to talk about today as we continue through our series of uh, Where is God When Life is Hard? And uh, uh, today we're going to look at uh, a comeback story. Uh, sometimes uh, life is hard with God because of the things that happen to us, kind of the pressures from the outside. But sometimes that life is hard with God because of the things that we do and the, and the choices that we make. We find ourselves... Uh, uh, distancing ourselves from God. And I don't know about you, it seems like most people love a comeback story, a good comeback story. Uh, And it's because life is full of setbacks. So whether it's physical or financial, uh, relational, uh, there are going to be moments in our life where where we feel this setback. But when we hear a story, a comeback story, it it gives us hope because it it shows that someone was able to pave a way for us to see that we're not going to be trapped in our situation. Uh, I was reading some different stories this week, and I, I was struck by a, a number of them. I just want to share two with them, two with you. Uh, some of you know who J.K. Rowling is, the author of the Harry Potter series, uh, maybe the, one of the most prolific authors in the 21st century. Uh, but before her first book, uh, five years before her first book, she's a single mom living on welfare. She, uh, uh, when she put together her first manuscript, it was rejected 12 different times by 12 different publishers. Uh, when her first book was published, they, they encouraged her, don't quit your day job, this is probably not going to last. Uh, but 450 million books later, I think she's doing okay. Uh, uh, but it's, it's in- interesting to listen to that. Uh, think about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, before he was our 16th president, maybe some of you have heard these things, that he failed at business twice, that he had a nervous breakdown, that he ran for Congress and lost, he ran twice for the Senate and lost, he lost a vice presidential uh, uh, race before he was elected president. And many people look at the work he did at the, at the time and, and the significance of it, and people would point to this person with the, this kind of background of littered failure and say, this was the greatest president our country has ever known. And so we, we love these stories, right? We love the stories of actors or singers, of athletes and teams. I, I, in fact, sometimes it's so strange. I don't know. Pay attention. Uh, maybe you'll see that you do this too. I love comebacks so much that sometimes I even find myself rooting against my own team because I kind of want to see what, like, I, 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 I'm, I'm rooting for the underdog. I'm rooting for this to happen. Uh, but we, we, we uh, th- love this idea that if we fail, that there is a way out uh, but here's what I found in 25 plus years of pastoral ministry that uh, for many people, the hardest comeback to make is a spiritual comeback. That when they, they find themselves distant from God, when they find themselves having made decisions, when they find themselves having done things that, that make them feel a sense of guilt or shame, when their life takes on certain uh, characteristics and they, they look and they think, I have just done too much. I have gone too far. There's too much to overcome. For some reason, people have a very hard time making spiritual comebacks. And and when we look at this, I I want you to see, because we're going to look at a story today that's so important, uh, because uh, none of us will will not need to, uh, or or have a a season in our life where we won't have to to make a spiritual comeback. We will all have seasons where we we make decisions that we're, we're, we're disappointed in, maybe even ashamed of. We will see patterns develop that we do not like. We will feel a distance develop between us and God. There isn't anyone in here that won't feel at some point some sense of spiritual setback and the need then for a spiritual comeback. And so that's why the, the story that uh, we're going to look at is so great because what we're going to see in the story is that God loves a good comeback. He loves a good comeback. And this morning, 
uh, we're going to look at a story of two rebellious sons, uh, a loving father, and a great comeback. And to do this, uh, to see the story right, uh, we have to look at two sons, two different sons, and two different problems. And so to help me look at the younger son, he, he's going to do the younger son, I'm going to look at the older son. But to help me uh, this morning is, uh, if you'd have told me 20 years ago this kid in my youth group was going to help me preach a sermon someday, I would have thought, wow, that's pretty, pretty awesome, and God's got a great imagination. Uh, but here he is today, our own middle school pastor, my good friend, Brandon Lay. <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> Bill made a great point that God loves a comeback story. And you, if you were with us this Easter, you probably heard the story of my, uh, my story my, um, as a comeback story. Again, my name is Brandon Lee. I get the amazing privilege to lead our middle school pastor, uh, little mid- pastors, middle school uh, students here, and also being the only Asian on staff, too. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so... Uh, can we have some fun this morning? I believe if you come to church, it is a great place to know God as well as to worship God with people um, that love him too. So uh, I remember back when I was 18, and, and some people on staff and people uh, probably thought, probably still think I look 18 by the way I dress skinny jeans and jean jackets and bleach my hair. Um, but uh, but I know in, in this room, looking around, there's, most of you have hit 18, or some of you in this area are waiting to hit 18. So I've uh, compiled a list of pros and cons. So a lot of you will probably jot this down via benefit. But we can look back. So some of the pros and cons of being 18. Pro, you are legally your own person. No more being treated as an extension of your parents. This means you can finally sign your own permission slips. Con, you are legally your own person. No more being cut any slack of being youthful. That means you do, uh, you do the crime, you do the time in real prison. Pro, you, are, you and your best friends can get a place together. Con, you are now responsible for more of your own expenses. You know, toilet paper doesn't appear magically in the bathroom anymore. <laughs> to go by. Pro, uh, you, are more, uh, you have more cool stuff to spend your money on. Con, you need to be careful to avoid racking up debt so ramen noodles is what's for dinner every night. Pro, there's a light at the end of the long, dark tunnel of, running, uh, of, of having to do whatever your parents say. Con, you will, probably, you will probably still live with your parents for another little while. <laughs> and then to finish it off, pro, you are probably still going to uh, still live <laughs> with your parents for another little while. So as I said, I, I, tur- I turned 18 my senior year uh, of high school, so I couldn't, uh, now I couldn't wait to graduate. So that means I have the opportunity to move out. So I graduated in 2001, if you know, um, 2001, and, or in this kind of lang- teenage language, to be finally set free. So I couldn't uh, wait to start living on my own and having my own standard of living or my own rules. So I just couldn't wait just to be on my own. And I can't identify with one of the characters in the parable that we're going to be in this morning. He experiences the same excitement of being on his own as well as uh, the consequences of his foolish decisions. He discovers despair, compassion, and restoration. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be starting at verse 11. If you don't own a Bible, I would encourage you to grab the one in front of you, the black one, and put your name on it and be, have that be your personal Bible. 
or you could follow along on the jumble screen on each side. But let me give you some context in Luke chapter 15. This is one of Jesus' most powerful recorded parables. If you don't know what a parables are, parables are stories that are told alongside a truth to highlight that truth. Now Jesus is telling these stories, stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin, to tax collectors and sinners who have gathered around him. Also with them were Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of that time, who wanted to make sure that everyone knew that Jesus was uh, welcomed sinners and, and eats with them. And, and to them, for them, to the Pharisees, this is not a good thing to see Jesus um, with the crowd. So as I read, I would invite you to put yourself in the story as I uh, highlight a few points. So let's begin reading. Verse 11 says, God continued. There was a man who, uh, well, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So let's pause there and see what's happening in a couple of verses. The parables opens with the younger son's request for uh, his share of the estate. In other words, give me my money now. Give me my inheritance. And to ask this while the father is still alive was the same to as to wish him dead. He wanted the father's things instead of the father. On the, uh, on the surface level, to lose part of your land was to lose part of yourself as well as a major share of your uh, standing in your community. On a deeper level, it's a dagger to the heart. It's a slow, wishful death. But it's, the father does not hesitate, and he does not argue, and he doesn't ask a series of whys. He just, for the love of his son, he grants his son's request. So let us continue reading. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off to, uh, for a, a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out, uh, out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, to the, his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill the st his stomach with the pods that, with the, that the pig were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat or anything. So the first, uh, I want to pause and give you the first point. Pain and trouble can come from our own bad decisions. Pain and trouble can come from our own bad decisions. So after getting his money, the younger son packs his stuff and goes off to Viva Las Vegas to a distant country, and throws his money away. Everything he had demanded and was given by the father was wasted in his new out-of-control lifestyle. The parable also mentioned a severe famine hit the whole country, and this would have caused a sense of uh, panic in the first century audience. The people would turn to desperate uh, measures just to survive. So moneyless and desperate, this, this younger son took a job feeding pigs. This is a job of great dishonor for a Jew. Even, even Gentiles, non-believers, wouldn't be caught dead with this type of position. And even though he was employed, he still suffers. And in deep desperation, he just longs to just eat the pig, whatever the pigs were eating, he went to dine with them, but he wasn't able to. 
And by now, some of you probably thinking, but the Pharisees are probably thinking, good, he is getting what he deserves. He is getting what he deserves. But what happens next in the story is uncommon and unheard of in those days. Let us continue. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I was set out and go back to my father and said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and, kisses him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. The second thing I want you to see and highlight is God, our God is a God of second chances. Our God is a God of second chances. No matter how far you have gone, God's desire is for you to come back to him. So this rebellious son reflects on his condition and realizes that his father's servants have it far better. So he crafted a well-written apology, rehearsed it, and headed home. And the father captures sight of his son, and he runs towards him. And you have to understand in those days you have to, uh, that children might run, women might run, and young men might run. But an older man and a highly dignified person in the community would not run. But this father does. He runs to his son and showing his emotions openly, he falls upon him and kisses him. And this father's action broke protocol of how to discipline this returning son. And no father in those times would greet this rebellious son this way. As you can see, the son can barely get his words out before the father restores him to full sonship right there instantly. And the father had the best robe put on him, a ring and sandals as well. And why were those are important? Those were important because the robe stands for honor, the ring for authority, and the sandals because children of the family wore sandals as opposed to slaves wearing nothing at all on their feet. And finally, the father throws a huge party, not just any party, but a rare, complete celebration. Two themes emerge from this younger son's action after he returns. The fear of rejection, or the fear of being rejected by the father, and the fear of judgment for his foolish actions. That's why he so carefully crafted an apology speech, trying to convince his father to, to somehow let him back. In some ways, we are crippled by the fear of being rejected. We are afraid that God would not accept us because we have wandered way too far or have been away too long. The, questions, the question of, will I be loved? In one way or another, Every person is on a mission 
for love and, and, and scared to death that they won't find it. We look for love in the wrong places and sometimes in the wrong people. We're so scared to death to end up alone. And that's why a good love story captures our attention and is so popular. In some ways, we are paralyzed by the fear of judgment. We are afraid that God will bring up our past or current failures and sin. Will, will people tolerate me once they get to know me? In one way or another, every person fears the hammer of, uh, the hammer of judgment because he or she have failed to measure up and they will spend their entire lives paying for it. That's why mercy and forgiveness stories quickly get our attention and hit us so deeply. Let me encourage you this morning that we don't have to be haunted by those questions. Will I be loved? Will people tolerate me once they get to know me? Would God accept me? I can see these same two themes played out in my story, my own story. First, before I, uh, before I came to know the love of Jesus, I too struggled with those questions. My fear of rejection was, uh, came from my biological father not wanting to do anything uh, part of my life, not doing anything with part of my life after my parents split. And to add to the boiling pot, my mom was emotionally distance, distant. I was empty inside and searching for a type of love that would fill my emptiness. So I went searching for a love in, the wrong, in all of the wrong places, in my, belief, in my family's belief and tradition, in my own career, and in my dating life. They were dead ends because they didn't give me a sense of worth I was looking for. Secondly, I had a fear of God's judgment because I had a long, long dirty, dirty laundry list of things I had done wrong, the bad decisions I had made, the people I wronged, the inappropriate things my eyes had seen, and the bridges that I had burned. And the list goes on and on. And to add to that, I had inside of me with an unforgiving heart. This was a byproduct of bitterness and resentment that grew over the years. So I couldn't help to see, my, see God like my biological father, abandoning me and not wanting anything to do with me. Also, I couldn't imagine God forgiving me, forgiving me completely for the things I have, the sin that I have committed. But I was completely wrong because the gospel, the good news It's the world's best love story. It is a story of God's presence and unconditional love for his people who do not deserve or earn it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the world's most amazing forgiveness story. It is a story of Jesus who is willing to uh, to die for the crimes he did not commit so that people like you and me will be fully and completely forgiven of every wrong and we we have done and would ever do. To understand this deeply in my heart, for me, that changes everything. The questions will I be, uh, the question, uh, uh, will I be accepted and loved, have been answered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And because of him, I am fully loved. And because of him, I am completely forgiven. And because of him, I have everything I will ever need. 
So is this your past or current story? Perhaps you're currently running away from God and searching for love and acceptance elsewhere. Perhaps you are looking at your past and you are stuck in the guilt of your bad decisions. If you see yourself in a far distant country, come home. Come home. If you, saw, if you, if you notice that you wasted all of your, of your resources, come home. And if you can relate to your younger son, come home. There's more to the story, so don't check out just yet. Uh, Bill will come and share some insight on the older son. All right, so try to think back to the context that Brandon created for you. So you have this audience of both religious leaders and sinners that are gathered together. These are the ones. And so Jesus is, is speaking to this audience because uh, he, he's trying to, to not only give them uh, the story in which they can draw themselves into the story, he wants them to feel the power of the story. He wants to take them into something very deeply. And so he's told three, uh, he tells three stories, and, and this third story seems like it should end right there because uh, story number one, something was lost, it's found, they celebrate. Story number two, something's lost, it's found, they celebrate. Story number three, lost, found, celebration. But now Jesus is going to do something very interesting. He wants to bring this whole crowd into the story. And so look at verse 25, where we think the story should end. Notice how Jesus is not quite done yet. Verse 25 says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now, stop there for a second. Notice what he's, he's trying to do, show. Jesus shows that everyone is celebrating but one person. This older son. This older son is, is not. Now, the older son, we see this, the character of him. He is dutiful. He's responsible. He goes out every day. He works. He gets the job done, and then he comes home. But when he came home this day, he hears the commotion, singing and dancing. He corners a servant and asks what's going on. And notice how the servant responds with kind of a matter-of-fact kind of answer. Well, you, you know your brother. Remember, we thought we kind of thought he was, we kind of lost for dead. He's alive. He's back. He's found. And so, of course, your father's throwing a great celebration for him. And this explanation, as he shares, only makes the older son more enraged and he refuses to go in. And, and so what Jesus is showing is some, uh, something very important. By, by refusing to go in, this older son is standing out, and he's giving a vote of, of disapproval, a vote of no confidence to his father. He's making a public statement that says, I do not agree with what my father is doing. And he remains outside. When the younger son was gone and out, the older son felt in. But now that the uh, younger son is in, the older son feels out. 
I notice just kind of the, the way this anger is developing. He's not my brother, he's your son. And, and he continues on. He doesn't want the celebration. Notice what he wants. He wants justice. He wants fairness. So uh, uh, one of the things that would have happened is this. Uh, as Brandon was sharing, that when the younger son came back, he was restored to full sonship. When he had originally left, uh, what the father had done is he had divided the estate, remember? So what would have happened in that day, what, what they would have heard is that uh, by him dividing the estate between two sons, the older son would have got two-thirds the younger son would have got a third. So the father liquidates the property. He sells things off. He gives the younger son his share. Now the rest of the family is going to live on two-thirds of what they have. But now when the younger son comes back and he is enfolded back as a full son into the family, that smaller portion now has to be redivided. This younger son will get, once again, a new third share. And he's, you hear him, I never once disappointed you. I never once did anything like this. I've never done any of these things. And he's adding everything up and he's saying, look at, look at the math on your younger son. He did this and he squandered a, a third of our wealth. And he's saying, I never disobey you. I have rights. I deserve to be, have been contacted or, or, or brought in on this decision. And, and if you think about it, be honest. Aren't, aren't you kind of resonating at least a little bit with the old, older son? Don't you, doesn't it at least sound somewhat fair and reasonable to say, he's kind of right. Like, Jesus, your math isn't very good. Like, I mean, how would you feel if one of your siblings did this and, and, and squandered this and just kind of got brought back into, like there's a part of you that says, ah, I don't want to admit it, but I kind of have to side with this guy, right? We feel this very thing, don't we? And when you look at this relationship and you look deeper at it, what you begin to see is this relationship that the son has with the father is transactional. He says, look, you, and he tells all the things that he's done. But notice what he's saying. He's talking about entitlement, not relationship. He's saying, I did those things, therefore I've earned these things. He's not saying, I did these things because I love you. Or I did these things because I'm your son. He's saying, I did these things and I deserve these things. And that's how we think when we have this older son mentality is that, that we, we, we obey God to get stuff from God. And so we see something very powerful in this, that pain and trouble can come from our own pride and resentment. Many of us can look at this story and we can see in this moment that sometimes the reason life gets hard, sometimes the reason we feel this sense of distance between us and God is because there's pride in our life. We refuse to go in to where God wants us. And often it's because of resentment. We're angry about the way the circumstances of our life are going on. We look at things and we, we feel this distance because we feel we have been loyal, we have been obedient, we have been dutiful, and yet the circumstances of our life don't match that. Uh, I've, it's been interesting to listen to some people uh, have been saying uh, to me, uh, this last year has been, been harder on our family, normal things that families just have to face, just normal trouble, but then add on to it the different health concerns within our family, the different extra things that have kind of mounted on our family that make it just a, an extra tough year. And some people have, have really responded to me with this, this idea of, you know, Bill, it makes me really uncomfortable to see you in this position because you do all these things for God. And if you're in trouble, what's going to happen to me, right? 
And that's the way we think as, as if I'm loyal, if I'm dutiful. Hey, I went to camp. I made a decision. Ever since I got home, I've been reading my Bible early in the morning. I've been doing the extra work that Justin's asked of us. So why does stuff right now stink? It, it doesn't add up and we become resentful. We become uh, angry about this. I, I feel this myself. Hey, big guy, <laughs> I thought last week's sermon was pretty good. I thought, I, I thought like raising $3 million for the, the new building things, like that was pretty good. We, we built that church in, in Mexico. That, really? We have all this, ex, like why this extra pressure? And you can feel your arms crossing and your, and your heels digging in and the resentment where he's saying, just come on, come into the party. Come into the party. And we're saying, no, because I'm not happy about how things are. And we stay outside. And if you're filled with this in this way, when you feel like the math doesn't add up, there can be pride, there can be anger, there can be resentment, and as a result, there's distance between you and God. But look at the Father's response. The passage ends this way, verse 31, it says, My son, the Father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And I love the way that the, the, uh, the father responds in this. Instead of anger, he responds in tenderness, my son. The son has been acting in such a way that he creates this image of being a servant. And he says, I don't ever see you as a servant. You are my son. Don't you know everything I have is yours? You could have a party at any time. And all this moment, what we are being reminded of as he's telling this part of the story is that there are really two rebellious sons. There are the sons that, that run off and there are the sons that are filled with uh, resentment. And, and, and in some way, what Jesus is doing is he's pulling together the sinners and the religious leaders of the day and saying, you all need the grace of God. You all need the grace of God. And what we see is a response that's required because what happened was the Pharisees continued to fold their arms and refused to receive what Jesus was offering about the kingdom of God. And they were stuck in their pride and they were stuck in their resentment. And Jesus is telling the story and helping you see that to join God's celebration, you only need to humble yourself. The only thing that's keeping the son out of the party is his pride and his resentment. And he's saying, if you want to join the celebration, if you want to join the celebration, humble yourself. The story ends with somewhat of a cliffhanger. If you notice, we don't know what the, the, the son's going to do. We don't know if the older son is going to come into the party or not, and that's kind of the, the, the power of the story. But the father's expression, we had to celebrate, has left the son with a decision. You can stay locked in to your resentment, your pride, your anger, or you can humble yourself, and you can come into the celebration, you can be part of the party, and you can take in all that is going on. That's what he wants for the son. And so this morning, you've seen two sons, and I want to ask you this question, which, which son do you relate to today? Uh, we will all have younger son seasons. We will all have seasons in our life where we feel like we are running from God. We will all have older son seasons where we feel like we're doing the things that we're supposed to do for God, but for some reason, it just doesn't feel like it's working, and we feel like there's distance. Which son do you feel like today? 
Have you wandered away? Are you stuck where you are outside the celebration because of resentment and pride? Here's the big idea I want you to see today, and I think it, it, we see it after we see the two sons, is, that, is this, is that there is no sin that is a match for God's grace. There is no sin. There is nothing you've done that can keep you from the grace of God. There is nothing going on that can keep you from the grace of God. There is no sin that is a match for God's grace. So no matter what you have done, God's grace is matchless. It's incomparable. The story seems to focus on the two sons, but if we lower the house lights down in the story, notice who the spotlight is actually on. The spotlight is not on the younger son, nor is it on his foolish decisions. The spotlight is not on the older son, nor is it on his pride and resentment. Jesus puts the spotlight on the father and his reaction to both sons. The spotlight is on the father who deeply loves you, who loved you enough to send his one and only son for you. Let me encourage you to humble yourself and delight in the God who deeply loves you. If you are far off, is it time to come home? Sons and daughters, come home. Come home. If you're standing outside, if you're holding back, is it time for you to come in? Sons and daughters, come in. Come in. And so we're going to close this time of the service with a focus. The spotlight continue to be on the grace of God. And so uh, in a moment, the ushers are going to come. They're going to pass to you the elements of the Lord's Supper. Uh, This is a chance for us to see something quite powerful. Because the the symbols that you're going to receive, this bread and this cup, represent the body and blood of Jesus. He told us to eat and drink and remember him and what he has done for us. And in doing this, uh, dear friends, what this reminds us of is that no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no uh, matter how distant you feel, uh, when, you, when you take these elements, when you taste these elements, you are reminded that there isn't anything that God wouldn't do for you that, to, to bring you into uh, his party, his celebration. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how distant you feel, this reminds us that God would make the ultimate sacrifice to bring you into the celebration. And so if this morning your desire is to to come home, then uh, take these elements and just say, tell the Lord, uh, I'm sorry I've been running, uh, but I'm, I'm back today and I'm excited to build our relationship. If you feel like you have been distant and on the outside, it just feels like something's raw, something's uh, not right, then take these elements and let him know, I'm sorry for the distance I, I have created. I don't want to feel this. I want to celebrate with you. And you're not a follower of Jesus yet. This is a moment for you to confess your faith, to say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I, I'm willing to say, I believe in you. I will follow you. And join with us as the church has done for the last 2,000 years. Take these elements as a reminder that he was willing to break his body and shed his blood 
for the forgiveness of our sins that we might have life and celebrate with him now and forever. And so let's pray. Lord, we just pray that you would open our hearts to the things that you want to do in it. Where we feel distance, where we feel uh, uh, separation or uh, guilt or shame, we just pray that you would use these last moments of the service uh, as we bring confession and humility. Uh, we want to meet your tenderness and your compassion. We know it is your, in your kindness uh, that we are led to repentance. And so we pray for that even now. And so be blessed by this time and meet us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you're ready, eat, drink, and remember him.